And good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. Joining me right now, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, uh, as he's wrapped up his time in Baltimore at the uh, Fall Conference, uh, Fall Assembly of the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops. Matthew serves as Vice President and Editorial Director of EWTN News and is also a Senior Fellow at the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology. Um, Matthew, good to have you back. Thanks. Oh, very good to be with you. Well, let's. Uh, I know that today the uh, in Baltimore they had closed sessions. I is that true? That's correct. Yeah, but let's let's clarify a few things. Did the bishops keep abortion uh, listed as our preeminent priority in the faithful citizenship document? They did, okay. and uh, it's notable because well, on a, on a number of fronts, um, as uh, anyone who follows the the work of the conference. Uh, would remember the 2019 back and forth uh, about faithful citizenship, uh, forming consciences for faithful citizenship, which is the bishop's document uh, on elections, uh, basically giving advice, counsel to Catholics on how to form their consciences. As they always say, they don't tell any Catholic who to vote for or who to vote against. Uh, these are the, the principles, though, as a Catholic you should look at. And there was the, the famous... Uh, Back and forth from the floor uh, between then Bishop, now Cardinal, uh, Robert McElroy of San Diego, and Cardinal Daniel DiNardo, who was then Vice President of the conference, uh, on this very question about whether or not abortion should remain, as far as the bishop's document was concerned, uh, preeminent uh, and listed as such. And the bishops, uh, as a body, voted yes, that it, it still is. And this document is significant because it keeps the document whole. It doesn't make any revisions. Those may come. We can talk about that. But it uses a, a letter, an introductory note. Uh, and in that introductory note, they stress again that abortion is and must remain uh, the preeminent issue of our time. And then they explain why, and, and not the least of which is that there are a million uh, children lost to abortion every year. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, numerically, it's just stunning. And then it's also the logic of it. We were all preborn children at one time, so every abortion kills one of my kind, and um, it cheapens our sense of uh, collective uh, um, worth. I, uh, so I'm glad to see that they continue it. Uh, yeah, and, and one thing, too, about it, um, the bishops themselves, uh, in their introductory note, uh, make... The point uh, that uh, when it, it is the grave threat to the dignity of the human person, yeah, and they then do go on to enumerate other threats. Mm -hmm. uh, they list euthanasia, human trafficking, uh, transgender, uh, terrorism, war, racism, and climate change. Now, the the fight has been for a number of years now. Uh, that uh, this document, according to some uh, a small group of bishops at, at the conference, uh, that it does not, to borrow the phrase, have the smell of Francesco. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and they assert that, uh, for example, climate change should be the most preeminent issue of our time. And there are some who say that. Uh, the, the bishops, however, in this gathering voted, I think it was 225 to 11, uh, to advance this introductory note, uh, along with five bulletin inserts and various videos, uh, to help 
voters as we head now into what is going to be the very complicated uh, 2024 election cycle. Yeah. Uh, and I think there is an awareness, too, that following this election cycle, the bishops are going to revisit the question of revising the whole document. Uh, but now isn't the time to do it because they simply don't have the time and I don't think they want to have the fight. Yeah. Yeah. This is, they've been talking about revising this document for a long time. So. Yes. Uh, yeah. We'll see. I, I, I don't know exactly how what would account for, um, you know, no matter how they're going to have a fight about it eventually. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't see how you avoid that. Right. And there's now, nothing wrong with having a fight about it either. I mean, no. Now, it's likely, as we have seen over the last few years, in, in the wake of the very public uh, disagreements that they had over the issue of Eucharistic coherence, uh, the, the fight is not likely to be on the floor of a, of a session that's being streamed publicly. Right. Uh, right. They have been leaning more and more into these executive sessions. So like this time, they started on Monday uh, behind closed doors. They had public sessions on Tuesday and Wednesday and then finished up, as is the usual custom, with an executive session today. Uh, so they've added an extra day. And that some of that is a byproduct of trying to get themselves together uh, on this whole issue of Eucharistic coherence that we've seen over the last few years and I think it's a pattern now that they've established and they're likely to stay with it because it does allow them to have very frank and open discussions mm-hmm. amongst themselves mm-hmm. uh, and to settle certain matters before uh, they have their public sessions. Now, yeah. Some would say that's not very transparent. The counter argument is that, yes, it actually does allow them to have these honest and frank conversations. Right, right. right. Uh, I saw a note that the U.S. bishops have voted to... Uh, advance the canonization cause of Isaac Hecker. Yes. This is... Um, this is, a, uh, this is a, I'm glad to hear this. This is one of the great American evangelists of the 19th century. Absolutely. And, and it's, he's one of those uh, candidates that it sometimes is a surprise. Oh, I thought his cause would have opened a while ago. Exactly. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> In this case, um, and for, by a bit of background, it is customary now, but not required, uh, that an Episcopal conference of the nation in which a cause is being advanced uh, should weigh in and give its uh, approbation, its support uh, to a cause. And I think uh, we've seen this pattern now. We had the Shreveport martyrs. We've had a few other uh, various causes brought before the body. Uh, and it's a helpful a vote of confidence in a cause. And this one, I think, was uh, pretty popular among the bishops. Uh, you know, we can talk in a second about uh, the, the call for John Henry Newman to be a doctor of the church, yeah, which I find I also that. very Ooh. interesting. But in the case of Hecker, uh, he, his cause was open, I think, in 2008. So he's already a servant of God. But I think now they're in the position uh, where the, the Paulists in, in the Archdiocese of New York uh, pushing this cause, um, and now they want to try to get greater word and greater support from uh, the emerit, the church in the United States. And I was really quite struck by uh, Cardinal Timothy Dolan, the Archbishop of New York, his comments about Hecker. He is, after all, uh, a in his own right, uh, a, a brilliant church historian. Yep, that's right. So he's certainly qualified to talk about it. But at the end of the day, I think about 230 bishops uh, voted in favor of it. Seven, for whatever reason, voted no, and then there were two abstentions. So it's clearly uh, something that the bishops want to say. But Dolan's great use, the 
the phrase that he used is classic American story mm-hmm. because because Hecker is. He, he, the, what I love about about him is he comes in. He's a son of German immigrants. Um, <clears throat> he he is a, a, a very uh, engaged uh, evangelist. Presentation of the Gospels. Uh, he's also standing up for exploited immigrants in New York City. Um, you know, so he, he and his brothers join um, the a faction of the New York Democratic Party known as, as the Loco Focos. <laughs> <laughs> yes. trying to achieve political change, and um, you know that faction uh, failed, and so he began to think seriously about how do you uh, find hope in a world like this. And right. his relationship with God grew. Uh, it's a beautiful and and story. He's, he weaves his way through uh, so much of the culture of the 19th century. Yeah. Uh, names that are probably forgotten by many today. Orestes Bronson, Orestes for example. Orestes Bronson, yeah. Uh, this, this brilliant Anglican who I think eventually became Catholic. Yes, he did. Uh, and these famous names of the archbishops of, uh, of New York, uh, Archbishop John McCluskey in particular comes to mind. Uh, and then finds himself in Rome uh, and this, this creation of this new congregation. But it was sort of the genius of, of the church, especially in the 19th century, to try to come to grips with what was needed in the time mm-hmm. and not to waste the talents of somebody like Father Hecker, uh, but to give him that space uh, to create a new congregation. Well, <clears throat> I think this is, again, I, I think it's a great story. And, again, that founded the Missionary Society of St. Paul the Apostle. As you just pointed out, the Paulist fathers, this was, again, uh, American. Uh, we'll see. I hope this stays in front of people. I mean, I hope, I hope those who are p- promoting the cause will keep it pu- very public. Yeah. Because uh, I, I, I think this is a name that's not familiar to most American Catholics. Now, John Henry Newman, uh, as a doctor of the church, I love that. Yes, me too. That uh, I, I joked uh, on EWTN News Nightly last night that um, uh, it is a statement in some ways of how calm the bishops' meeting was. That uh, perhaps the most exciting news of the of the of the week coming out of the USCCB meeting was this massive declaration by the bishops that uh, petitioning Pope Francis to name John Henry Newman a Doctor of the Church. <laughs> that this this is really quite exciting. This is a similar to what uh, the U.S. bishops have done a few times over the years. Uh, there was a body vote uh, asking, uh, I think it was Pope Benedict at the time, to name John of Avila a doctor of the church, yeah. which subsequently happened. Uh, in 2019, uh, the U.S. bishops also petitioned uh, Pope Francis to name Irenaeus of Lyon a, a doctor of the church, which subsequently happened in about two years after that. So the hope is that this will spur things forward. The actual impetus for this was a request from the English and Wales Bishops' Conference uh, to garner international support uh, for this petition. We'll have to see. I mean, John Henry Newman, uh, as uh, Bishop Robert Barron in his comments yesterday during the discussion among the bishops, made the point that he is a bridge, that there are Catholics on the left and Catholics on the right who can actually come together yeah. on Newman because he has so much to offer. Yes. And he does fulfill, at this point, arguably, two of the, the 
major requirements to become a doctor of the church. The first is he's a saint. He was canonized in 2019. Mm -hmm. And uh, there is the eminence of his teaching. I don't think there's anyone who would disagree on the scope, scale, and depth of John Henry Newman's writings and his influence theologically. I loved him before I was Catholic. And uh, I just (laughs) thought this was a brilliant man. He had such spiritual insight. He was theologically uh, uh, yeah, he, he, cohesion. You could see he, his worldview was solid, um, and I, he was a great stylist too, an English sty- pro stylist. Yes, you don't see that very often anymore. It's a joy to read him. Yes, that's true. Yeah, hold it there, Matthew. We got to take a break. We'll continue. My guest, Dr. Matthew Bunsen. We're taking a look at uh, what's been going on around the church, all over the world, and uh, got some interesting. Uh, doctrinal issues that have come up this week about transsexual baptisms and Catholics and Freemasons. So stay with us. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. With me, Dr. Matthew Bunsen, taking a look at the church stories around the world, one story uh, that everybody is aware of is uh, the uh, president of China, Xi Jinping, meeting with Joseph Biden, our president, in San Francisco. But what they don't know is that the Archbishop of Beijing is visiting Hong Kong this week. This is a historic visit, and uh, I was glad to hear of it. What can you tell me about it? Well, that's right. This is uh, a fairly remarkable development uh, because this is, uh, as I think you noted, uh, that the first time that uh, the Archbishop of Beijing has visited Hong Kong since established, basically China took was taken over by the Chinese Communist Party mm-hmm. and broke uh, relations, formal relations with the Vatican. And we're, we're talking about almost 70 plus years. Mm-hmm. So in this case, uh, Archbishop Li Shan, uh, who is uh, also the president of the Chinese Catholic Patriotic Association, which is the state-controlled uh, Catholic church in China, which is, in other words, is the state-sanctioned right. uh, church. Now, sometimes that there's a misunderstanding about that, that somehow it is not Everything that they do is not valid, uh, so that there's a complicated history there. Uh, but he visited Hong Kong uh, at the invitation of the recently created Cardinal Stephen Chow, uh, and it's a reflection of, of two things, I think. The, the first is that Cardinal Chow has proven in the time that he's been the Bishop of Hong Kong very adroit diplomatically uh, in creating what he has himself described as a, a bridge Uh, between Hong Kong and the mainland. Hmm. Now, let's remember that about 10% or so of the population of Hong Kong is Catholic. And so there is a a strong Catholic presence historically in Hong Kong. Uh, It is obviously at great risk now. And the other aspect is, I think, a a visit like this would not have been possible without at least the tacit awareness and approval of uh, the Chinese communist leaders uh, who are obviously in very strict control of all religious life, in particular in the last years under uh, Premier Xi Jinping yeah. and his program of cynicization. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, no, this is, this is true. Um, and I'm, I, was, I saw that uh, uh, Lee presented Xiao uh, with a stained glass image of the Venerable Matteo Ricci, yes. the famed missionary uh, <laughs> That's China. That's right. 
Yes, one of one of our fascinating moments in in church history and the history of Catholic missions. Uh, well, that's right, and and it, it, there's a significance there uh, too because the idea of presenting uh, a, an image like this, Matteo Ricci, uh, a great voice, a great uh, missionary, uh, somebody who took this heroic trip to the Far East, but who would nevertheless, in this environment uh, of Chinese communist rule, would be seen as an invader, That's right. as a foreigner, uh, who would therefore be a, a diabolical threat uh, to the homeland, to China yeah. itself. So a gesture like this means that there is this receptivity to that which is outside of what is traditionally called the Middle Kingdom. Yeah. Uh, so there's, there's always uh, a symbolism to a lot of this. Uh, what's significant, too, about Li is that um, he was ordained the Archbishop of Beijing back, I think, in 2007, but that was also with the approval of Pope Benedict XVI. Okay. So that's notable. Yeah, it's it's a complicated situation there. I remember many, many years ago when I first became aware that there was a, a state-sanctioned uh, church, and this is true with evangelicals, Protestants, as well as Catholics, and that there's also a, uh, quote, underground church. It was always assumed that the underground church was always doing things right and that the state-sanctioned church was doing everything, uh, well, they, they were masters of infidelity. Uh, <laughs> and it's not quite that simple. Uh, there are authentic believers in the state-sanctioned church and authentic vocations as well, as I understand it. Well, that's right. Uh, and none of uh, these discussions uh, can take place without recognizing as well the, the over shadowing of all of it uh, by the secret agreement uh, that exists between the Holy See and, yeah. and the Chinese Communist Party uh, for what was the intention of it. It was not supposed to be a diplomatic agreement. It is not a kind of formal concordat, uh, to use the, the traditional technical term. It's really designed to, to try to normalize or regularize uh, the ecclesiastical life in China. At least that's the stated goal. We've, we've never seen the terms. Right. We know that China right. itself has violated those on a, on a pretty regular and egregious basis. But uh, Pope Francis has made it clear that he plans to stick with uh, this agreement uh, where you have a process in place for the nomination of bishops. So a meeting of this type where you have the president of the Chinese Patriotic Catholic Church with what is now clearly the highest ranking, certainly because he's a cardinal and an active cardinal, with all due respect to Cardinal Zen, of course, who's emeritus. But Cardinal Chow is, in many ways, the voice for the Catholic Church in China. And I think this opens the door for some potentially very significant discussions. Did the U.S. bishops have any statements about how to follow up on the synod on synodality? Yes, so there was a, a pretty extensive conversation about it. Uh, I think it was on their first open day. Uh, and we heard, uh, for example, from uh, Bishop Kevin Rhodes, uh, mm -hmm. who was one of the participants. Uh, all of them agreed, uh, as to no surprise to anyone, that they thought that the experience of uh, the Synod itself was a, a remarkable one for them. Uh, I think that the question that's been asked, and I think this is uh, key to uh, where the bishops are going from here, is what happens next? Yeah, yeah. What is exactly the plan coming out of the Senate? Now, in fairness, and, and this is something that Bishop Daniel Flores, uh, the outgoing committee chair on doctrine, who is also part of a, a small committee that helped form some of the bigger work of the Senate in Rome, 
when asked uh, by the Catholic News Agency, what's next? He was pretty straightforward. He said that, uh, well, we are still waiting uh, for some clarity on that from Rome. Uh, He expressed a desire for some sort of an executive summary of this final synthesis document that you and I have talked talked about probably more than anyone wants to hear. Mm -hmm. Uh, But he said that it it is a 41-page document. And it needs to be summarized so that it can be applied. Uh, But he did stress, again, that this is a month ago, uh, that that less than a month ago, that the Senate actually completed its its work in this phase. So let's see what happens in the the coming months uh, as the next steps. Now, there's a lot that needs to happen on the local level, apparently. uh, And I think great attention needs to be placed on what bishops are going to be doing. Uh, on that local level, especially once we get into the spring and we're looking at the prospect of another instrumentum laboris for what's supposed to happen in the fall with the, the concluding session of the Senate. Yeah. Yeah, it's, you know, Bishop Rhodes said during the November 14th press conference with, with Flores, he said, you know, when you think about it being a 41-page document, how are we going to consult people? Are they going to read 41 pages? And this is what, from the beginning, this has always been a concern. Yes. Um well, it's hard to get people to read four pages. <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> One other uh, thing that uh, really jumped out uh, in this this gathering of the bishops, there was the presentation on uh, a document that was somewhat forgotten for a number of years, and, and that was Encountering Christ in Harmony. Uh, that goes all the way back to 2018, and that was uh, focusing on pastoral care for Asian and Pacific Island Catholics, hmm. because this is increasingly important because they are the fastest growing minority group of Catholics, but also of the general population in the United States. Huh. And they are at times overlooked. They're, they're forgotten. Yeah. And so yeah. a very interesting presentation was given by Bishop Larry Silva of Honolulu, uh, who, of course, has uh, led uh, his flock through the terrible fires on the island of Maui. But uh, he talked about the different things that have been done in the intervening years since the implementation of this. And I think it's, it's worth just noting uh, that there really is an active program. Uh, and we love to talk about that they form these committees, they issue these documents, and nothing happens. Right. In this case, I think they were able to show things like certificates of ministry that are available to anyone. You can do it online. Uh, and how that is increasingly important uh, with the growing Asian Pacific Island population. We think often just of the West Coast, but in fact, we're seeing growing populations uh, in Texas and elsewhere. Mm. And uh, it's a a pastoral situation that, uh, again, we have this idea that nothing really ever is accomplished. Uh, In this case, it is, but they also recognize that a lot more progress needs to happen. Has to happen, yeah. Yeah. Um, There's a statement that... um the Holy See has reaffirmed that Catholics cannot be Freemasons? <laughs> yes. Yeah, okay. So? This is uh, under the heading of things that you didn't think needed to be reaffirmed. Right. right. Uh, but I found this an, an especially interesting story because of, of two things. First, the, the clarity of the document that came from, uh, that was signed by Pope Francis and the prefect for the Dicaster of the Doctrine of the Faith, the, the again, newly minted Cardinal Victor Fernandez. Uh, in clarifying what exactly is permitted. Uh, in this case, it was a responsum uh, to a dubium. Uh, so we, mm-hmm. we've been seeing a lot of these. Uh, we all have to bookmark the DDF homepage now uh, <laughs> because they're churning out these documents. 
But the other is I think that there's a value uh, in reiterating this at a time when so many people have either no idea what the Freemasons are or no idea what the church actually teaches right. about the Freemasons because it, we have this image today where you can belong to everything. Uh, but there are very valid reasons why Catholics cannot belong to yeah. the movement yeah. of Freemasonry. Yeah, there's a real history here, and it's it's worth uh, it's worth looking. Uh, different countries, uh, membership in Freemasonry is more significant than others. Um, but uh, here in the United States, it was very significant, especially in the 18th century. Um, let me ask, jump to something else before we run out of time, though. Yeah. Transsexual baptism. Yes. What What is this? What's going on here? Well, what we have seen, uh, and this is another one of the responsa uh, res- uh, from, uh, or the responses in the, in the plural sense, to questions that have been asked about what's permitted by the church. And it's, as we've been talking, a very complicated uh, situation. But essentially what has been reiterated is that it is permissible, but under very specific circumstances. And you have to read the document in some ways to appreciate what exactly uh, is being said here. Uh, by, in particular, uh, again, we go back to the prefect for the doctrine of the faith, uh, Cardinal Fernandez, uh, and essentially what he's saying is that for a child to be baptized, there must be a well-founded hope that she or he will be educated in the Catholic religion. But they're basically opening the door without changing doctrine. And that's important uh, to this question. Hmm. Well, we'll come back and pick up pick it up a, another time. Yes, uh, a I lot know, to unpack there. Yeah, and I see some theologians are starting to weigh in on it, too, like our yes. friend uh, Ed Echeverria over at Secret Heart Major Seminary. So Yes. All right, Matt, thanks so much for taking the cool. time. And Great we'll, to be with you. We'll talk soon.